uh, 3, uh, 15 is an ironic portion uh, in the whole organization of his letter because it deals with unity. Paul is going to start to speak about the Galatians and trying to unify them as a church. And the ironic thing about this, the ironic reason behind it all, has to do with the fact that this is a very um, controversial letter. It's a, it's a letter that is uh, combative. He's at odds with um, some false teachers who have crept into the church and are causing problems. So really the whole letter is um, what we would normally say in our society is not very um, polite. Uh, he, he's going to actually insult them even more. And just recently he called them all fools. But he changes his tone here, as we'll read in Galatians uh, 15. And he calls them brothers. So let's see how this one true gospel, which is that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, is actually the only principal seed of unity that we will find in this whole world. The irony is that that is spoken inside of a letter that is all about fighting with other people. So there's only really true unity in fighting for the truth of the gospel. Everything else is just ecumenism and squishy, feel good, let's get along but not talk about anything. That's not unity. That's just not talking about anything and not believing anything and not knowing anything. If you empty your brain and your heart and your soul, well then you're just like a leaf in the wind. You're not a human. and This isn't the kingdom. So this is why Paul is so pressed to fight with the Galatians because he loves them and he loves God and he loves truth and he loves unity. So, he says this, after making the whole case that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, he goes on to explain why. And he gives an example, an illustration. To give a human example, brothers, to make his point why it is faith alone in Christ, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law contrary to the promise? To explain briefly, the controversy with the Galatians is they are trying to earn God's position and favor, righteousness, by performing works of the law. And that's the problem with Paul. He's saying, do not trust in the law. Go with the promises. There's a law promise. That's a different thing for Paul. So he says, 
Is the law contrary to the promise to God? Certainly not, which would seem to be opposite of everything he's just said. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So you can see, that's the first moment here, really, in the letter in which Paul has landed on his whole point he's been driving at. Unity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, even male nor female. That we are all unified in Christ. But to get to that unity, he has been fighting with them every page. Every letter, every verse has been an attack, a combat for the truth. See, truth unites. This whole letter is predicated on there is such a thing as a true gospel and a false gospel. And if there is a true gospel, then there is a real possibility for unity, for peace, harmony, shalom, heaven, in the Old Testament mind. That is, the gospel is true, and if it's true, It promises what it has and it will deliver on those promises, which is heaven. Which is the opposite of what we see in this world. Of division and hate and envy and war. So, it's better to fight with words than with swords and guns. If, if a people can have this gospel in their hearts. The point is that it unites us in Christ. Illustrating all of this is his example. He's saying, I've told you that you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified simply meaning right standing, right relationship with God by faith in Christ. That is with your intellect, your volitions and affections. All of you, a living faith, not a civic faith, not an intellectual faith, not a historic faith, not a philosophical faith. A faith that involves your bloodstream. A faith that involves the beat of your heart, the impulses of your mind, the synapses of your brain, and the very loves of your psyche, the things we can't even touch, your soul. What is it that you want? What is it that you love? That is the biblical definition of faith. And if you want that in Christ, then you have beautiful, perfect, clean relationship with God, righteousness, a right standing with the Lord. And if you have that, he says to illustrate this point, that it has to be this way through Christ only by faith. He says, I will give you a human example. And so his human example is nothing really complicated. It's actually very common and something we would understand. Two people have a contract. 
They settle in on some type of contract, a mortgage, a car payment, a land deed or grant, a will and testament at the end of someone's life, whatever it might be, some type of legal, official, documented contract, agreement, that when two parties come together on an agreement, at some point, a signature is involved in which no more can be added or taken away from that contract unless it would be invalidated. In the ancient world, actually, when you read the book of Revelation, you'll find a scroll that is written on both sides, front and back. In the ancient world, they would do that because it was their way of assuring that no one could falsify the document. They would fill the paper up with words from front and back. So there was no um, uh, empty space for someone to say no, or but, or and, or uh, common, comma, slash, give it to my sister. You know, that, that was their way of shoring up a document. There's no way to change it. There's no way to amend it unless the two parties come back together, of course, and agree. But you can't just change it willy-nilly or by yourself. Simple example, Paul says, see, what I'm saying is so common, it's understanding. If you could just understand my example, this is what I'm saying. The promise, the gospel, which is a contract, it is a very serious contract that God has written out, and it cannot be changed just because the law came by. The contract or the promise of the gospel is more fundamental than the law. He goes in to speak about history, and this is actually uh, how all arguments usually end up. Do you ever have this disagreement with your uh, significant other or a close friend in which you are at odds with one another? And usually what happens in the conversation is, well, let me tell you a story. And then it's usually the story about them on their actions and deeds that caused you to do what, what you did. But like, I did this because you did that. And you did that because I did this. And then all of a sudden you're back to when you first got engaged. You're saying, well, I'm here because you asked me to marry you and it's your fault. But it's, see, what happens is when you, when you deal with disagreement, usually history becomes involved. That's what Paul's doing. He does three things. He brings out a long history that actually has to do with inheritance and it ends in baptism. Unity. Being washed and cleaned together as one person. He draws out a long history, speaks about the promises of the inheritance of heaven and then he ends by washing it all in baptism and unifying it. That that movement that Paul was making, I actually saw it earlier this week. You might have heard, and maybe even saw already, uh, this now famous and probably will be historic interview uh, between Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin. Millions of views on various outlets, so I'm going to assume we've all watched it maybe, I don't know. It's out there. It's... It's about three hours. It's, it's very interesting. I had a lot of things to do on a Thursday night. And I opened up my phone and it was there. And so I was on the couch for three hours. I had to watch the whole thing. And I'll watch it again. But it's an interesting interview. And I'm using it as an illustration. So please don't, uh, after the service, say, wow, uh, Pastor Matt really should, it's dangerous for him to watch the news because now he thinks Putin's a great guy. <laughs> I'm not saying that. This is, again, disclaimer, an illustration. I'm using Putin as an illustration. But he does really get at the point of what Paul is doing here. If you watch this interview, what's remarkable is that 
The first 30 or so minutes is nothing but Vladimir Putin explaining the history of Russia. And why? He even brings out some of his, uh, part of his administration comes out and brings out documents, historical documents to try to prove his historical claims to Russia. Why? Inheritance. He wants land rights. He wants to make an argument or case that Ukraine is properly Russia. He goes to history to prove it. So at the beginning of the interview, there's nothing more what Paul's doing. History, history, history. Here's the story. Why? Inheritance. Who is the right to be called children of God? And just like in the interview with Putin, I love how Tucker Carlson, I feel like he has this Christian faith. I know he's an Anglican, but I think he's maybe more than a nominal Anglican now. He talks a lot more about the supernatural and how important the Bible is. And uh, just last year, I remember listening to him where he said he made a point to read the whole Bible. Just, that's a dangerous thing. You could get yourself saved doing that. And so, I understand that about the man. And so at the end of his interview, he goes to Putin and he ends with baptism. The same thing Paul ends on. And he says, now, now President Putin, you've confessed to be a Christian. How does that work with your war in Ukraine? How do you justify that? And this would not be the answer to give in a new membership interview here at the church. But Putin's answer was, Vladimir the Great was baptized in the 10th century and brought Christianity to Russia. So I'm a Christian. Okay, you might be able to say you're an Eastern Orthodox Christian running a dictatorship invading Ukraine with that testimony of faith, but that will not be, get you to be membership at New Life Presbyterian Church, unfortunately. You have to have a living faith, not a civic faith. Vladimir Putin has a civic faith that perhaps Christianity is good for the masses, so it's good for him. And if all he has is a baptism testimony that's over a thousand years old or close to it, it's probably not a true testimony. But still it ended in baptism and unity. And Putin said, no one can divide the soul. Ukrainians are Eastern Orthodox and Russians are Eastern Orthodox. Therefore, they should be united. Not a good answer for church membership. Now let me explain the true gospel. It is not a matter of Ukrainians and Russians. It's much more important than that. It's a matter of Jews and Gentiles. Only if he were to think that way. Only if every president and king of every country would think that way. That we would not have our categories of us versus them or me versus you, or Ukraine versus Russia. But in reality, all that exists ethnically, as far as God's concerned, Jews and Gentiles, universally, everybody, that is to say. The inheritance is not getting a little closer to Kiev. The inheritance is the promised land that was given to Abraham. And not just the promised land, which of course Hamas would like as well. See how this all just becomes fleshly fighting? But if nations understood the gospel, you would understand there's at least a principle, an intellectual reason that that interview could have went differently. That it really is about the kingdom of God, the glory of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That the nations would be baptized, not with a civic religion, but a living faith. Which is the whole point of Paul's writing the Galatians. That they would have a true faith in Christ. And if that happens, it will have to result in a real unity. That there will neither be Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, or male nor female. That the fighting would be quelled. The, the um, intersectionality and, and the debates we have about race and gender and all the like would begin to fall apart. As we conceive ourselves as being dead and alive in Christ. This is the potential power of the true gospel. So Paul goes to explain. The promise was made, and here's Paul's history lesson. And if you listen to that interview with Putin, it was a very long history lesson. I'll try to keep it shorter. But if you would please hear me out. I'm just going to give you straight history. I'm going to pick on what Paul has said. I'm going to fill in more of the gaps, hence the need for expositional preaching. But I'm going to give you a history of what he's trying to say. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but to offspring referring to one. The irony of that is that the word seed is a collective noun. It can be like flock or flock or flock or flock, which means many, but you only have one. So the point he's saying is, yes, it always is about multiple seeds, but that one promise was to Isaac, the one son who came. So it was always about one particular seed was the promise. Abraham's one son that was promised to him. And so he makes a chronological point. That promise of him inheriting the land, Abraham, come to me and follow me, believe in me, and I'll give you an inheritance, a land that will be yours, or a blessed land in which I will be with you and be your God and you will be forever happy. It is heaven on earth. What heaven on earth? Everyone's looking for heaven on earth. Come and follow me. And then Paul says, but this is to say that the law came 430 years after, after that promise was given to Abraham. That is, the promise is more fundamental than the law. The promise was the original contract cut and made with God and Abraham. And that cannot be amended or annulled just because changes were being made. Something was more central. Something was more important. And if the inheritance could come by the law, is no longer by promise, he says in verse 18. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do you hear the inheritance language? What can I get? What land could be mine? The gospel comes and says, you can have this land, but you can only have it under one condition. No condition. You can only have it by the promise. By receiving the promise. Receiving what I said I will do for you. If you receive that, it's yours. There was no law involved. God simply said to Abraham, come. And he came. That's the gospel you see. See, after the service, there will be a benediction. And if you want to talk to friends, go to the South Building. And if you want a cup of coffee, you'll find it too. But if you have to deal with the Lord, if you hear him calling you to come, then come. The elders and the deacons are here to pray with you now. That is the gospel. 
Just come. So Paul's point is that you cannot start with a promise and then change to the performance of doing the law, earning God's favor. But then it seems like he contradicts himself in verse 21 where he says, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. Just because they're different doesn't mean they're opposed to each other. Just because it's all of grace and all of God's promise does not mean the law is not good and the law is not important. That is, the doing of God's will. If the law could have been given that would have brought life, he says, then righteousness would be by the law. That is, if you could earn God's favor in your life and actually have, enter into God's eternal, eschatological, end-time blessing just by living a good life, then of course you could. And actually, there's a possibility for that. If it's possible to do the law, you can have it. The promise is of faith, which you receive. The law is of performance, what you do. That's why just a few verses earlier, Paul goes on to say, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the law is not of faith. That is, the law is a matter of doing. He says, those who do them will live by them. And then he quotes Leviticus 18 for that effect. So what he's saying is, the law is a matter of doing, the promise is a matter of receiving. You can try to earn it, but you will fail. Therefore, you must only receive it through the promise. Only receive it for what is being done for you. The point of the initial fall of our humanity was this fact. That there was a garden and there was a tree of life and there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, we are told nothing about that tree of life. And that has always bothered me. But then we go immediately to speak about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're told that there was a, the Bible says, command. God gave a command. You hear law there? Don't touch that tree. Don't do that. We didn't do what we weren't supposed to do. That is, our performance was off. And then the curse came. But we know that there was a promise behind the first tree. A promise of life that followed with a law of command. Hear this out. There was a promise of life. Here's a tree of life. We're not told, but we know from Paul's interpretation that if you were to take that tree of life, you would have true life. We couldn't find the promise because we failed in our performance. That if we would have succeeded in the test, the command, that if we would have succeeded in such a way as to not take hold of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we would have eventually been rewarded with life, the tree of life. How do we know that, even though Genesis doesn't actually say that about the tree of life? It's here in verse 12. That's Paul's interpretation of the matter. Verse 12 says this, if the law was given that could bring life, then righteousness would be by the law. Do you see how in his mind he connects life and righteousness that is, performing the law, performing God's command results in life. God's command is don't eat of that tree. If we would have obeyed that command, we probably would have got the other tree. Do you see how Paul's thinking this way about between righteousness and life and the law? So the first promise was based on personal performance. The promise is life based on personal performance. We failed in all that. And so as the history goes, the history not of Ukraine or Russia, the history not of America or Europe, this is the history, the history. This is the only narrative 
See, you want to frame these narratives, right, to find unity for the pace of your argument. Of course Putin wants to put out the particular propaganda that has to do with framing his history of Russia so that he has ancestral inheritance rights to Ukraine. The only problem, the logic is wonderful, the only problem is it's not about that. It's about all the world, all of us. If the narrative is too narrow, to include everybody, there is no principle to actually finding peace and unity. But the narrative of the gospel is fully expansive. is that we have all fallen, we have all fallen our sin and corruption, and now God's promises are not predicated on our performance. His promises come with the performative power inside them. That all of his promises will be performed by himself. That's the gospel. That all his promises he will perform. So shortly after Genesis, when they fell into their sin, God promised again. He added to the contract a particular other promise that the seed, which is important to Paul throughout Galatians, would actually crush the head of the serpent. And when Eve gives birth to a son, it says particularly that Adam knew his wife, and she said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That is, there is a performing of God's promise on God's end to this. He is saving his people. We are not saving ourselves. And so that we would never even be interpreted as actually seeing Eve giving birth to a child as anything she has done. The verse has to tell us, don't you dare think that this child came by Eve's power or Adam's power. It was the Lord's power. God is performing his promises. See, we're given a hope through this seed because her name is the same name as that tree that we're told nothing about. The tree is called the tree of life. That's it. We're not told why. We're not told why it's there. But then Adam, after everything was cursed, called his wife Eve, which means life. For she will be the mother of the living. That in some way the promise we missed with that first tree is found in the womb of that woman. There's life in there somewhere, mysteriously unknown at the time. But for us, you know where that life is. As God called Abraham out by the promise, simply just come with me. Leave your land and come to this land I'll show you. He came. He received the promise. And Genesis 15 is the very contract that Paul is talking about. Bear with me on this history. If I can listen to a translation of Putin for 30 minutes about nothing but Russian propaganda, perhaps, please hear this gospel. In Genesis 15, a contract was truly made. Abraham came to God and said, but how can I know that I will inherit this land you've promised me. How can I know I will have the inheritance? God said to him, you will know for certain that your generation, your seed, will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Now bring me some animals. And every major animal that was used in Israel's sacrificial system was present there. A heifer, 
a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. They were all cut in two except for the birds. And the covenant was this, an ancient covenant, an ancient practice that was common to Abraham's time, that he would walk between the parts of the animal so as to say to his king that if I do not fill up my end of your covenant, then let me die like these animals. You give me that land and I will be your servant forever. And if I fail in any of my duties, in any of my performances, then let me die and you keep your end of the promise that I will never inherit the land and I will be cut apart like these animals. That was the covenant that God set up for Abraham. But the glory and the weight of entering into an eternal covenant with the living God was too much for him. He couldn't do it. And we're told that he simply just fell asleep. He fell down unconscious in the presence of the holy God. And instead we're told that fire and smoke walked between the parts of those animals. Fulfilling Abraham's side of the covenant. And then 400 years later, fire and smoke walked with Abraham's seed, his descendants, right out of Egypt, into the wilderness, part of the Red Sea, up to a mountain. And then, as Paul says, 430 years later, fire and smoke descended upon a mountain, manifesting the very presence of God, and gave the law. That was literally the whole explanation of that one verse where Paul says 430 years later. What he's saying is, don't forget your history. The first thing was the promise. The second thing was the law. The first thing was the breaking of any possibility of it being done. And Abraham falling under the weight of the glorious presence of God so that he could not even in interact or enter into a covenant with God. He performed no aspect of it on his end. The land inheritance that was supposed to be his was not fulfilled by him. In fact, the glorious fire and smoke everywhere in scripture representing the glorious presence of God himself walked between the cursed parts. That is, the promise of the gospel is God doing what he will do while we sleep in our own sin and depravity. And that he performs his promises. So he goes to the Galatians and says, This is why you may not add one thing to your salvation except Christ and him crucified. For cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And cursed is everyone who walks between the parts of those animals. They deserve to die on all accounts of the human side of our covenant relation with God. And God himself fixed that covenant by taking on our portion of it. Therefore, from the beginning to the end, the promises of the gospel are all performed by God. Therefore, you can do nothing but believe, for there is nothing left for you to do. And if you add to it, you insult the one who died for you. You lift yourself up as someone special and righteous and able to perform goodness in the presence of the glory of God with all of our sin. God is providing the performance of all his promises that he offers you. The good news is the gospel is all you do is receive it, eat it, 
Drink it like bread and wine. So if this is the case, oh boy, if this is the case, the history of the law then, we could go with that verse. I'm trying to pick out which part of the Bible it is. (laughs) It's like a trivia. Cool. Hey, it's all right. No, no. I mean, like, second service. We could do a service this evening. Um, the The history of this law, then, Paul asks, is this. Why, then, the law? Verse 19. The answer is not so that you could find the law and start to think, I will make myself better and perform righteousness for the Lord. The answer, he says, is particularly two things. Transgression and the offspring that was to come. The law was added because of transgression, he says. When I um, had Violet, our youngest, when she was even younger than being young as she is now, she was starting to navigate the backyard and learn the lay of the land. And she always would come up across the road or bump up against the road in front of our house. And without really knowing anything yet, because she was still so young and just really first time being a little autonomous in the backyard, it was incredibly cute. But she saw that road and she... She knew enough about it because she'd see these very big um, things go by with four wheels very fast. And so she knew enough about the road to know she's probably not supposed to be on that road. It's a different thing. It's not grass. It's harder. It's black. And uh, she looked at it a lot and came up to it and put her foot near it. And I could see the temptation. She wants to walk on it. But she doesn't want to walk on it very quickly because she knows, see, down in her mind, this isn't for me. This isn't good. Those things are bigger than me. I probably shouldn't be on here. That... It's an idea of what sin is. Sin is, based on what we know of the Lord, we know we're not supposed to do the things we do, deep down in our conscience, and if you asked us long enough about it, we would say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But transgression is a little bit more. When I came to Violet and said, Violet, no, no on the road. We don't go on the road, only on the grass, never go on the road. When I said that, That became a transgression, you see. For now the law creates an opportunity where a clear boundary marker has been delineated. And across that delineation is a transgression. It's crossing the line. So why the law? All of us are in sin. All of us know it. But we can't express it so clearly. God gives the law in order to say, here's your problem. I'm laying out for you all of this law, so now I will heap upon your guilty conscience even more guilt, so that you will really feel the wrongness of your wrong. That's why. Congratulations. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the law. Thank you for giving me even more transgression. Why? And this is the point of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this law was not meant for you. See, he says... The law was given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was meant for Christ. The law was meant for him. That's why the gospel's good. You get to learn that it's not your problem. 
You never could fulfill the law. It's like a small child that puts on his or her parents' shoes or boots and they go up to their thighs. Then they try to walk around in them and they fall over. The law was not meant for you. Those shoes are too big for you. You will, if you try it, stumble and fall and look ridiculous. They were meant for someone much greater than you. That law was meant for someone much stronger, much wiser, much more righteous. That law was meant for Christ. That's why next chapter in Galatians 4.4, Paul will say, Jesus Christ was born of a woman, born under this law. He came to fulfill all righteousness. It says, he imprisoned by this law all of us until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was there simply imprisoning us for the purposes of the revelation of Jesus Christ. This law is our guardian, Paul says in verse 24, until Christ should come in order that we might be justified by faith. You were always meant to be justified by faith, by believing simply the promise, because from the beginning it has only been on the promise and God performing those promises. So the law was only added as a guardian or a tutor, that when faith comes, there is no longer any more need for a guardian. That when Christ comes, this portion of the law, this reason for the law is done. Because it accomplished its purpose. The fence is torn down because there is no need for the fence. The law was meant to sabotage you. To sabotage you. That's the point. When you realize that and accept that, your conscience is free. You're not defensive. You can hear the gospel. I was preaching the gospel uh, last week, actually right after last Sunday. I just preached on Galatians and I was talking to my neighbor and I started preaching in my backyard, like really preaching, like kind of awkward. And, and my neighbor was there, who also is a Christian. We're talking about one neighbor who's not a Christian. And I just had a lot of Galatians down in my soul. And so I just gave him more Galatians. And that idea of preaching the gospel, uh, I explained to him, don't be offended by what I'm saying to you. The, the gospel is a stumbling block because it, 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 stum it stumbles your pride. I'm telling you, you're very, very evil. I'm telling my neighbor that. It makes for a great neighborly relation. <laughs> I said, you're very, very evil, but don't be offended by that, so am I. See, what you need to do is you need to understand that's meant to break you. If you could simply just let this be your tutor that leads you to Christ, you don't need to be offended. You just need to accept it and let it go and lay hold of Christ. But if you have residual self-righteous pride, this gospel is going to hurt. You're not going to like being told you need to go to hell. You're not going to be, you're going to think God's unjust and unfair because you don't know how holy he is and how unrighteous you are. And so that great chasm of a fish trying to explain what it's like to breathe air on a mountain is impossible. The law comes to say, let me show you why you can't go to heaven because if I even give you the rudiments of holiness, you cannot fill these shoes. And so the offense of it is only meant to point to Christ. To point to Christ. The word here for guardian is pedagogos. It's the word we get English, pedagogy. Pedagogy meaning a method of teaching. The law is a method of teaching. The first five books of the Bible called the Torah in Hebrew means teaching. It's a teaching technique. 
I heard of a teaching technique that is used on small children. And it is called the sabotage technique. If you have particularly aimed for very small children, perhaps in like preschool or kindergarten or first grade, where they're just beginning to really leave their parents and be on their own in school, get on the big bus and all the other adults, and they get nervous and scared. They become very um, focused in on themselves. They're looking down. Uh, they're closed in. They're timid. They can't learn. It's just too hard for them. They're, they're so small and so uncomfortable. Uh, this technique is used. It's called the sabotage technique. What will happen is, teacher will see that the first few days of school and then create problems for the students out of love. Create problems for them. That is, teacher will come up to a small little child who just won't play with the kids, is super nervous, wants to go home, calling for mommy, and gives, gives the student a little broken toy. Says, can you play with this with me? And then the toy's broken and the student says, I can't play with it, it's broken. Oh, you, you need someone to fix it, don't you? Yeah. Or they'll come to the student and say, I need you to cover this for me. But they'll leave the crayons on the top shelf. See? I can't color. I'm too short to reach the crayons. Oh, you need to look up and call out for help? Deliberately sabotage in order that you will look up, call out for help. The law is your schoolmaster, your teacher, to bring you to Christ. For we are all closed in on ourselves, shamed, timid. Look up and call out to Christ. It's all about relationship. That's why. The law is meant to bring you to look to God. For once in your life, to look to God. Dear Father God, we ask that you would help us to see you. Lord, we pray that as we share the gospel with those who are around us and those who love us, that we would offend them only for a brief moment, a brief moment, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would call us to look up and call out for help. And the name of our help is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is also just and the justifier of all who have faith in Christ. So Lord, we give you our lives. We submit our whole being to you. We ask, Lord, that you would make this gospel palpable, make it potent on our mouth and tongue, and make it vibrant in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able? We'll close the service with singing. <clears throat>